Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. Lila Savage is originally from Minneapolis. Prior to writing fiction, she spent nearly a decade working as a caregiver. Her work has appeared in the Three Penny Review. She is the recipient of a Wallace Stegner Fellowship and graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her debut novel, Say, 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 will be published in July 2019. You're welcome. Not quite the beginning. The old woman stands with her knee bent, her foot propped on the retaining wall, her belly thrust out, her coffee cup clutched to her chest, She's the kind of woman who, when she stands with one hand on her hip or adjusts her trucker hat over her short gray hair and plastic-framed glasses, appears tough but cheerful, distinctly unfeminine. In her mind, she still seems to be an athletic woman of maybe 40 and not a round senior with a magenta sweatshirt tucked into the high waistband of her tapered stretch pants, her ample thighs funneling into calves and then tiny feet in pointed black leather shoes. It's difficult to imagine she ever took men as lovers, but the girl knows she did. She's told her. She's told her about meeting men folk dancing, bringing them home. She's told her about how sometimes the doorbell would ring Sunday morning, and the woman would turn to the man beside her and say, That's my father here for breakfast. You can join us or you can leave. The choice is up to you. Sometimes they'd stay, but more often they'd leave, she's told the girl. And the girl has heard, in great but innocent detail, about the woman's high school sweetheart, and how eventually he'd proposed not once, not twice, but three times. The girl has heard this told in this exact phrasing many more than three times. The woman turned him down all three times because she had not wanted to be anyone's wife, but she wanted the girl to know she'd had opportunities. There was another story she'd told once but not repeated. My dad asked his secretary. She'd heard of a doctor who would do it. How old were you? Oh, mid-twenties. I called him. He wanted to come to my apartment. I didn't think I could say no. He forgot his watch. After all that, he didn't take care of it. I still ended up having to go to Mexico, but my dad came with. My mom was on a trip to Europe, thankfully. I never told her. My dad insisted on coming into the room where they would be operating. He saw the tools were dirty, and he yelled at the people until they sterilized them. He saved my life. I can't believe that American doctor. Couldn't you have reported him to someone? What could I do? I had asked him to do something illegal. I sent the watch to his house. I hope his wife opened it. A day early on. It's hot out, the girl observes. Oh, I know it is, I know it, the old woman affirms. She has become a little defensive, as if every observation is designed to catch her out. She knows the sunset is beautiful. She knows it. She smelled the roast cooking. She already smelled it. That flower is blooming and she knows because she already saw it. Around the same time, maybe. One of these days, the old woman tells the girl, 
I'm going to write to President Obama and tell him, I've enjoyed the first two books, dramatic pause, and I'm looking forward to reading the third one, as though she has come up with the very concept of presidential memoirs, as though this is very clever. She begins making this pronouncement with increasing frequency and expanding duration, key points made with less clarity and more emphasis, rather like a self-congratulatory story in the hands of a garrulous drunk. So I says to the guy, I says, you and what army? One day the girl finds on the woman's desk, next to the computer she no longer knows how to turn on, both of Obama's books and a letter. It is blotted and crossed and misspelled, stretching crookedly across the page in a childish hand. It informs the president that the old woman enjoyed both of his books and is looking forward to reading the third. A day a bit later. The girl is folding laundry in front of the TV. They are watching reruns of Murder, She Wrote. The girl holds up a pair of underwear that would fit someone literally a hundred pounds heavier than the old woman. Aren't these too big for you? Oh no, they're fine. A mystery. Where did the underwear come from? They are lonely in their scale, set apart from the appropriately sized pairs. They are familiar. The girl has folded them confoundedly many times before. They are strange, even absurd, but one accepts that. It is strange and lonely and familiar work. On several different occasions. The girl and the old woman walk to the drugstore for cough drops. The old woman's pacifiers suck, suck, suck all day and into the night. The old woman is tired and her hair is sweaty under the trucker hat. She wants them to sit in the display lawn chairs in the middle of the store. The old woman looks a little eccentric with her odd assortment of vintage brooches pinned to her fleece jacket and her smudged glasses, but she doesn't look like she needs a helper, and so it looks as though the girl is sitting in a display lawn chair for a half hour in the middle of the store in the middle of a weekday afternoon because she wants to. Eventually. The old woman has lost the enameled circle dangling from one earring, far from the first time. This circle repeatedly comes off its bent wire hook maybe once a month and turns up in strange places like in the driveway or in a disorderly pile of mail. The old woman claims her mother gave her the earrings when she was a child, but the girl has her doubts. They don't look old enough. They aren't the sort of earrings a child would wear. And how many middle-class American girls had pierced ears in the World War II era? The origins of so many objects have become fluid. There is a plastic photo cube from the 70s, with a photo of a young girl in it that the old woman has declared to be herself as a teenager. It is clearly part of the packaging, a cheap print of a model, in color, perhaps 13 years old, with waist-length hair and bell-bottoms. Any photo of the woman at 13 would be black and white. The girl thinks about how long this photo cube has sat on the piano displaying the faces of strangers, presumably since the 70s, 40 years. This time, if they find the circle, the girl will try harder to secure it, a vow she has made more than once to no avail. The wire doesn't want to be bent. The tools are a mess. The pliers could be in any illogical place. And even if she found them, for what? The old woman would just lose her real pearl ring again, and maybe this time the girl wouldn't find it in a Ziploc with the cheese in the fridge. The old woman agrees that it is too loose and valuable to wear, that it should go back in the jewelry box, but the next day it is back on her hand, along with a ring made out of a folded dollar bill that the old woman claims her high school sweetheart had given her. The girl doesn't need to try to find a date on the bill to confirm the unlikelihood of this story. The important thing is, the old woman thinks it is irreplaceably sentimental, and it is getting damp and creased. The girl finds this distressing, and she is confronted with a strange desire to preserve the old woman's belongings with no one to save them for. 
There are no descendants, no living family members, and even if there were, who else would value the dollar ring? It isn't even legitimately old, legitimately sentimental. It is only valuable to the old woman, and if she weren't wearing it, effectively destroying it, it would conceivably lose all value, because out of sight, out of mind. The dollar ring is perhaps uniquely ephemeral, or maybe not. Maybe there are other things in that category, like the piece of broken plastic the old woman is displaying on a silver platter with the antique cut crystal decanters because she likes the color. Or the old newspapers, as unreadable for her today as they were when the news was current, but still, she hasn't looked through them yet. Or the spices, older than the girl, that the old woman not only never cooks with, but actively shouldn't. It would be like seasoning with the dust from the windowsills, flavorless waste matter. Fortunately, there is no risk of the old woman cooking anything. These days, she often can't remember how to use the coffee maker or even the microwave. But these things aren't like the dollar ring and that the girl wants to throw them away and the old woman wants to preserve them to no useful end. The old woman's cramped suburban 40s bungalow, purchased at a time when women didn't buy houses alone, is full of grand heirlooms, ornate Victorian furniture packed in tightly, enormous portraits with curving gilt frames, a bed with a headboard that nearly reaches the ceiling, a matching marble-topped vanity with a towering mirror. It is a look both discordant and cozy, more interesting than the usual clutter belonging to a woman of her age and income. Her family's wealth has not survived, although it seems each generation was able to afford not to sell off these items and many others, solid sterling goblets and monogrammed napkin rings, salvers and creamers and ladles, and decaying velvet sacks of ivory-handled silverware, enough for place-setting after place-setting in a robber baron manse, tied up with a handwritten note. Do not let soak in dishwater, although no one is eating with them these days. The girl only knows they exist from rummaging, from searching for missing photo albums, flashlight batteries, spare keys. One day the old woman shows the girl a lovely silver squash blossom necklace, tells her it had been her mother's, and then it goes back into the box where it had been hidden. The girl thinks that the next person who wears it will buy it at an estate sale, and though she enjoys estate sales, the thought saddens her. She decides to create an occasion for the woman to wear the necklace, throws a small dinner party, and invites the old woman and the woman's neighbors, two retired men, friends from when the dementia was only a feeling of uneasiness brought on by a backyard so overgrown one couldn't walk into it, and shutters pulled shut all the time, and a diet that seemed to consist entirely of tepid coffee stirred endlessly with sweet and low orange juice and peanut butter sandwiches, accompanied by a tiny juice glass of white wine. It is the neighbors who found and hired the girl. She is paid by the old woman's accountant, but they have been taking the old woman grocery shopping and to the doctor's appointments they schedule and filling her days of the week pillbox with Aricept and Lipitor and baby aspirin and vitamins for at least a year before the girl was hired, at least since the old woman's driver's license was revoked. The old woman wears the necklace and it is admired and then back into the box. The girl tries to tell herself that there is no tragedy in the fact that there is no next of kin. The old woman knew she didn't want children or marriage. She chose and struggled and ultimately succeeded at careers in male-dominated fields. She traveled, built a darkroom in her garage, wrote an unpublished memoir, went dancing every weekend that she didn't go skiing. The girl's affection for the woman is bound up in this independence, in the books about the Black Panthers that appear randomly in with the many novels on her crowded bookshelves and the faded and stained Nayral sign in the basement, saved from some demonstration long before the girl was born. One day the girl says to the old woman, Things are easier for women my age because of work you did. I want to say thank you. 
You're welcome, the old woman says, simply and cheerfully and without surprise or confusion. The girl is touched by the way the old woman has accepted her gratitude as due. She thinks about how she prepares meatloaf for the woman and changes her sheets and puts lotion on her pale and mottled back to sighs of pleasure. We all need touch. And she thinks of watering the old woman's plants and scooping the cat litter and mopping the warped linoleum in the kitchen and, both Christmases of their acquaintance, helping the woman bake panettone from the ancient recipe box inherited from her mother. How the girl had soaked the golden currants in the Grand Marnier and zested the lemons and oranges while the old woman had chopped the walnuts in an old wooden bowl, completely round so it rocked on the counter, using an old metal utensil with curved blades to curve hard against the wooden bowl sides, so perfect for the task, a rare flash of determined competence in the even line of the woman's mouth. Old memory. The girl thinks of the quiet domesticity of these tasks, and it seems perverse that she, bright and college-educated, should make so little use of the old woman's blows against the glass ceiling, but fitting that she can respectfully offer these womanly, homey tributes. Who else but one's own might tend to the aging soldier? Who else might sit in the twilight, attentive to the battle tales? But then she thinks of the neighbor men, of their tidy files labeled with the old woman's name, how they were the ones to find a plumber to fix the shower, and a crew to clear the yard, and had the furnace serviced, and a million other tasks, large and small, that usually fell to adult children or siblings who still found it all too much, and not to mere neighbors. They are not paid as she is, and when the four of them go out for coffee, she is the one on the clock. It is hard in this light to romanticize her feminine role. Nearing the end. Last night I woke up hearing a man speaking to me in my bedroom, the old woman tells the girl. He was standing near the door, but I couldn't really see him. I asked him if he wanted to come to bed with me, but he said he needed to leave. He would come back. I lay in bed for a while wondering when he would come back. Then I wondered if it was a dream and got up to wait for him in the living room. Then I called 911 and a police officer came out to speak to me. He said give them a call if the man comes back. I can't decide if it was a dream or someone got their hands on a key to the house. We just had the locks changed. I'm pretty sure it was a dream. But I could hear him so clearly. It wasn't like any dream I've ever had in my whole life, the old woman tells her. The matter is discussed at length, becomes more muddled, more repetitive. The girl can't decide if the woman is becoming more reassured or more agitated. And after all, what is the more terrifying prospect? That a strange man was in her bedroom or that she is losing her mind? There isn't really a soothing option to offer. This isn't the first time she's hallucinated a break-in attempt, just the first time they've been successful at getting in. When she would talk about it in the early days, it was eerie because most of what she said sounded so sane in contrast. She seemed like an ordinary, functioning person, and then suddenly, improbable stories of men following her home from a stoplight and pounding on her garage door and finding her number and calling her house for years because they didn't like the way she looked at them out of her car window. This is eerie for different reasons. It's eerie because the woman doesn't question why she invited the strange man into her bed. It doesn't make it any more likely to be a dream. The next nighttime hallucination brings the police, the neighbor men. The woman cries when she tells the girl about it. She knows she has what her mother had. She knows she will have to move. Closer yet. Packers and movers have been hired, but the old woman doesn't understand. She has been packing in her crazy, determined way, taking down the shower curtain weeks before the moving date so it won't be wet when packed, putting dirty, broken lawn furniture from under the house in the middle of the living room. It's hard for the girl to know what to do when she's there. She feels lazy watching the woman shift objects around anxiously, resentfully, 
It's like watching a toddler pack for a trip. A small suitcase containing an empty clothes hanger and a pillow. That sort of thing. But there isn't really help to offer. The woman has found a way to participate in this unwelcome thing that is happening to her. She is claiming some agency in the only way she can manage. It's almost worse when the woman stops packing and plops wearily into her usual armchair, pale pink with an enormous grease spot where her head rests. When she isn't packing or nodding off, as she increasingly does, she is grieving. She is grieving out loud to the girl, and the grief is so repetitive it is almost like a mantra, or like improvisations on the same theme, never exhausted, never complete. The grief is about the house, and it also isn't about the house. She tells the stories of the deaths of her mother and father, over and over. She tells the story of her mother's miscarriage, the brother she never met but has been mourning nearly her entire life. She tells the story of buying the house, of moving in, of eventually remodeling it, of the huge potluck she threw decades ago, with speakers propped in the windows, and folk dancing late into the night in the enormous yard. The stories are garbled and messy. She repeats details. She loses words. And the timelines are wild and surreal. She was 20. She was 60. She was 12. She was in college. Whenever she can't remember how a piece of information was conveyed, regardless of era, she says, I had one of those early cell phones. And the girl never argues. The girl knows every story better than the woman does at this point, but it isn't of any real use. When the woman gets stuck on a detail, the girl waits a respectful amount of time before supplying the sought-after word, or sometimes she suggests a wrong word first, so it doesn't seem like she's heard the story a thousand times before. When the woman isn't grieving or sleeping or packing, she is worrying. She knows she is moving, but she doesn't know when or how. Each night might be her last night in the house. She worries about fitting all the furniture, as though that is remotely possible. She worries about the cat, about how he will adjust, about where his box will go. She worries about how she will get back to the neighborhood to see her friends. The girl grows weary of explaining and reassuring. She is grateful when the woman sleeps. The Cusp The woman has seen the assisted living apartment once before and wants to see it again. She's being moved Monday. It is Thursday. The girl and both neighbor men accompany her. She is hostile to the mildly patronizing managers who welcome them. They are left in the sunny apartment. The girl is impressed with the apartment. It has skylights and a small private deck facing trees. The ceilings are high and the layout is pleasing. The woman is withdrawn and belligerent. She says, I don't want to be here. I hate it. She finds reasons it can't possibly work. Where will the cat box go? Here. How will she afford the $4 tickets for paratransit to visit her friends? If only she knew how much everything costs. The apartment, the meals, the laundry service, her accountant. Aging and illness are expensive. But of course, none of this is said. She is told she can afford paratransit. Her objections continue, are repeated. She's like a child bargaining with her parents not to divorce. She may suspect her objections will be overridden, but she must still desperately make them known. The girl wants to tell her how nice the place looks, but she doesn't want to seem like she is trying to convince her. She says, I don't want to make light of your feelings because I know you are upset. And the woman literally stomps her foot and says, I don't want to be here. I hate it. I hate it. I want to go home. The room is very tense. One of the neighbor men says, I know you do. The woman says, you'll get to go home and I won't. I'll be here where I don't know anyone. It's so easy for you. They are all unbearably weary. But the neighbor man says, well, it's in the cards for all of us eventually. Our turn will come. 
when we have to live in a place like this, and I hope when we do, we have nice neighbors and friends to help us. The neighbor men researched and visited many facilities, met with all of the managers of the homes. They've been working with the moving company and the realtor who will sell the house. They've made sure the woman got her TB test and the cat has been screened according to the health policies of the facility. They are tired, but who would do this if they didn't? That isn't reason enough for most neighbors, but it is for them. His answer can't reach the old woman in the state she's in, but it reaches the girl. The woman's sadness is painful, but over the weeks and months, the girl has come to feel a degree of remove, as though her empathy is still there but worn smooth from the constant friction, or like she's built up some kind of tolerance, like becoming insulin resistant. It floods her, but in an ineffectual way. It doesn't change much. This kindness from the neighbor men, however, in the face of the woman's utter incapacity for gratitude, it overwhelms the girl. She wishes that the woman could feel, as she does, the power of this kindness. The men go to get some plants from the car. They have agreed that moving a few objects might help the old woman feel as though she is involved in the process, that she is, in a sense, choosing it. It is just the old woman and the girl in the empty apartment. There is an informational folder on the counter, and the old woman throws it as hard as she can and then begins to sob, saying, it's so easy for them. The girl holds her and cries with her. Then the girl says, the easy thing would be for them not to help, to stay home, to do nothing. They are helping because they care. The old woman can't comprehend. The girl says, they don't have to help, but you would have to move here anyway because you have an illness and it's getting worse. They take the old woman out for coffee at their usual cafe, and then the girl makes her a hamburger when they get home. They sit in front of the television with the golden girls on. It feels like it could be any ordinary Thursday night, and the old woman is in her pink chair, her head in the greasy groove, her lean gray tomcat sleeping in her lap. Calmly, the old woman says, What did you think of the place today? Cautiously, the girl says, Well, I know it's not home, but it's really pretty nice, pretty comfortable and attractive. The old woman says, I feel bad about what I said there. The girl says, You were upset. Don't be too hard on yourself. The woman laughs a little bitterly, with a self-knowledge that is increasingly rare now. She says, I was disoriented. I didn't know where I was. The girl says, did that scare you? The woman says it did. They say these things to each other a few times, because clarity, when it comes, is a slippery thing. It needs to be fondled and dropped a few times, and even then, whether it will stick or not isn't guaranteed. Hi, Lila. Hi. Thanks for being here on Off the Page. Thanks for having and me. And thanks for returning to Stanford. Uh, you were a Stegner Fellow from 2014 to 2016. Along with me, mm -hmm. yes, we were. It's a good time. Yes, it was a good time, and we we grew up as fiction writers <laughs> together. Um, you know, normally I would start by asking about the piece you just read, and I do want to get to that in a second. But uh, maybe the first thing I should ask is just about your path to writing, because I feel like I met you relatively early on in that path. You did. Um, yeah. if you just talk a little about how you how you found your way. Well, I was always interested in writing, but I didn't think that I had the capacity for fiction writing in me until I was in my 30s. I started writing a novel, and um, yeah, I hadn't been working on it even a year before I got to Stanford. Um, so I was really new to the form. I know that you had experimented with some other forms, more like memoir or nonfiction. Yeah, I wrote like prior. personal essays, and yeah. I kept a journal, and 
um, things like that, but nothing like long form or yeah, nothing of that scale of a novel. When you when you started writing or started working on your novel that that became say say say, uh, did you find something clicked for you in terms of the, the writing process that was different from other attempts? Um, I think I just had more curiosity about what I could accomplish. Before I had just been pessimistic, and then suddenly I had an idea that made me want to explore um, making things up. Um, and then I found it really gratifying when I started tinkering with it. It was hard though; I didn't have anyone to guide me. I read a lot of books about how to write books and <laughs> yeah. trial and error. So you you worked as a caregiver um, mm -hmm. for for quite a while, and this story, "You're Welcome," and also your novel, both deal with that subject matter. Um, I know this is a huge topic, but can you just talk a little bit about your experience in that field and, and some of the things you're trying to represent um, in your work now? I've always been really interested in people's jobs, like, you know, what people do for a living and especially maybe people, you know, who work at service industry jobs. Um, I was a sociology major as an undergrad. And um, so I was interested in exploring my own work and what my own work meant to me. Um, and particularly, I think, because I'm interested in questions of gender as it relates to caregiving and things like that, um, seemed rich with opportunities for that. And looking at, you know, class roles um, in working for somebody else. So, yeah, it, it lent itself as a natural topic to me. Yeah. Well, let's talk so a little bit about this story. You're welcome. What was the... Uh, genesis of the story and what was the drafting process like? Um, I really wanted to capture some of the experiences I had doing caregiving work that were specific to Alzheimer's. My novel is about a woman who has um, a brain injury and so she's younger than most of the people I worked with when I was doing caregiving work. Um, and so in this story, in particular, this woman having to leave her home um, the feelings associated with that, I really wanted to try to capture. It's like, you know, an experience a lot of us will have to go through or go through with family members. Um, and it's really painful. There's there's no way to sugarcoat it, really. But yeah, I, I tried to capture what I've observed. Yeah, there's something really just implacable about aging and senility. I mean, yeah, we all have to, and death. I mean, there's no... There's no course correction. There's no deus ex machina. And so that makes it, I think, really, really heavy subject matter. But I think, yeah, especially, you know, doing this kind of work, um, caregiving work, really has given me a different relationship to my own experience of aging. I mean, I'm only 38 now, but I've thought a lot more than many people my age, I think, about what my old age might look like. And, yeah, it's... There's not a lot to be optimistic about. I guess healthcare is getting better in some ways, but um, now I'm just going down a dark path. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's that's totally fine. I do want to say though, like these are my my novel, say say say, and the story are so far the only things I've written about caregiving work. It's not the only thing I know how to write about, but it's a thing I do care about writing about now for the first time, more did, or less. Did you always have in your mind that you wanted to use um, like this? The titles for you know that the, the story is broken into a series of sections that have that have their individual titles. Was that always something you were interested in? Um, I don't remember my exact thought process on that now, but I am interested in 
not having totally linear formats um, or engaging with the reader in a direct way um, that I found interesting to experiment with in the story. Because um, time is fluid in the story. And so defining the amount of time that's passed or is going to pass, playing with that with language, I found interesting. Because that, that's sort of related both to, I guess, the old woman's experience of time, but maybe also the experience of time as a caretaker, because it's kind of like monotonous. It's very monotonous. The time goes very slowly. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly doing that kind of work, my experience of time was really different than in other jobs I've had where I've been much busier. So that's true. That's a good insight. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that I think is really distinctive about your writing, and I know we've talked about this a lot um, in 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 real life, is that um, you know you are really interested in putting like thought and putting sort of like ideas sort of explicitly on the page more so than some fiction writers sort of give themselves permission to do. For instance, in your welcome, you know, the the passage, which I think is maybe for me the most compelling passage in the story when she's thinking about how her affection for the woman is bound up in what a sort of iconoclast she was and mm -hmm. how she's like the sort of feminist hero for the girl. And then she goes on to think like, and here, and, and now this is weird inversion where I'm the one doing these sort of traditional feminine domestic tasks for her and like the irony of that and then and then compounds it further by thinking about like oh but the guys next door are also like I can't make myself too much the hero of the situation because yeah. the guys next door are also doing a lot of work like I guess my question is in terms of your experience of coming to fiction writing being in workshops you know have you found it uh like people are really into that kind of writing or you have, have you found like pushback where people are like, you know, show don't tell, or maybe we need some more like, I don't know, birds in the trees or something. I think I've received less pushback than I've maybe deserved. <laughs> I think maybe my work could benefit from moving away from that a little bit, but I haven't received a lot of criticism for it. Um, I think it's just, it flows pretty naturally from my voice. Um, and maybe that will evolve as my writing changes over time. But I am a tell-don't-show kind of writer. <laughs> and are there writers that you find yourself turning to who sort of work in that mode that you look up to? I certainly have writers that have been influences for me, but I don't know if they write in a similar mode. Well, you know, I know we both love Alan Hollinghurst, yeah, and he kind sure. of does that. I and mean, he has a lot of interiority. I really find work that has self-reflection built into it is most appealing to me. But it's not for everyone, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, no good writing is for everyone, really, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But I guess I just always feel like when people say, oh, there's too much interiority, there's too much exposition or something, to me it's just like, but that's something prose can do, you know? Yeah. Why would you want your prose to just be like a movie, right, mm -hmm. written down? It was interesting as I was reading this piece, being reminded, I think this is the most dialogue-heavy thing I've ever written. I just don't write very much dialogue. But um, there's still definitely processing passages, I guess, of yeah. examining that dialogue. So we've sort of been talking in this conversation about how your fiction often draws upon, like, real-life events or has real-world analogs. Mm -hmm. So, like, just sort of how do you, as a writer negotiate that like because I think there's obviously lots of conversations in the world about in both nonfiction and fiction about the sort of ethics of 
representing, you know, real people or, or, or part aspects of real people in fiction? Like, is that something that's been challenging for you or? Yeah. Um, you know, I've done a lot of different drafts of the novel in particular and to, you know, to varying degrees, tinkering with, you know, how much the characters are made up or composites or whatever. And it's really a difficult line to, I don't know, I haven't figured all that out for myself yet, what what feels ethical and what doesn't. But I kind of feel maybe it's just because I come from, you know, personal essays and journaling. My life is the material I have to draw upon. And so, like, being in my life means you're vulnerable to possibly being represented, I guess, to some extent. But it is fiction. You know, it is all stuff I've made up. Yeah. And with fiction, like, as opposed to nonfiction, do you just feel like, that there's more freedom there to embellish if you want to, to like get at a point that maybe is kind of like implicit in a real situation, but not quite, not quite fully realized. So like, let me just change a few things or heighten something. And that'll be what I really want to talk about. I see a lot of advantages to writing fiction. Um, One of them is you can make the timing more convenient to make the story better. I mean, there's so much, you know, wonderful nonfiction out there, and I'm not I'm not trying to criticize the constraints it faces, but being able to rearrange the story so it makes the most sense to the reader is an exciting thing to be able to do. Certain things are more vivid or feel more real when embellished. It's exciting to be able to play with that, and it's also just you know, I'm I'm not endlessly interesting. <laughs> it's nice to be able to explore things other than my own life and psyche. And then maybe the last thing I wanted to ask was, um, you know, you mentioned that this was uh, an older story. It was mm-hmm. published in 2016, I believe. Um, and as we all do when we look back on work from two, three years ago or a month ago, you know, we <laughs> totally cringe. Um, but, it, you know, in all seriousness, it's obviously a beautiful story. Um, but you had mentioned there were things you would like do differently or things you would change. Um, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering if not to critique the thing you just read, but just to talk about maybe how you're evolving as a writer. Like, what are things that you might do differently now? Or what are things you feel like you've learned in the last few years? I do think this story requires less explaining than I offer in it. Um, I, I didn't see it that way when I was working on it before. But now that I've had some distance from it, yeah, I think, well, I'd be a different person if I wrote it now than the person who wrote it. So maybe it's for the best that it's stuck in its moment in time, but... But yeah, it is interesting to see I would do it, even though I felt like the story was pretty polished and I was done with it, there are things I would change now. It's interesting to evolve that way in your relationship to your work. Yeah, and it never stops, I think. Yeah. So you'll be a senior statesman <laughs> writer, like totally cringing at the stuff you wrote in your 50s, probably. <laughs> Just hoping. Something to look forward to. <laughs> This episode was produced by Alessandra Wallner, Maddie Curtis, and our talented team of producers, editors, and coaches. Aaron Wu, Sienna White, Aparna Verma, Yui Lee, Claudia Haymack, Christopher Laboa, Victoria Wan, and Jet Hayward. Thanks to Leland Quarterly for their editorial help, especially Zui Zhao. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his supervision, and to Ivan Bolin, 
Christina Ablatza and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden.